saw God's promises begin to Abram in Genesis 12. He says, go, I'll bless you, I'll make your name great, you'll be a blessing. I'm going to show you a land that will be for you and for your descendants. Time has passed. Several things have gone on in Abram's life. He's wavered in faith a little bit in chapter 13, where he was not entirely honest with Pharaoh regarding his wife. God protected him there uh, at the end of chapter 12. And then in chapter 13, there was the question of whether he was going to stay in the land, trusting God to provide for him, even in parts of which were somewhat of a wilderness. And he continues to honor God. And then in chapter 14, there's the question of whether something's going to happen to him when he goes to rescue Lot. But again, God spares him, preserves him, blesses him. And now we come to chapter 15, where God formally makes a covenant with Abram with regard to all of the promises that he has been making up to this point. Chapter 15 starts out and says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying. This phrase is not often used in the book of Genesis, but it occurs a number of times in the Old Testament, particularly in the books of Kings. And in those places, it is a reminder that God's word is certain, that God's word ought to be obeyed, that God will honor his word. For example, in the book of Kings, there's a prophet who goes and brings a prophecy, and he's offered hospitality. He says, God told me not to eat or drink until I return home. And then he breaks that when someone else invites him in for food, and God strikes him dead. The word of the Lord is something to be taken seriously. It is something that is sure that ought to be honored. What then is the word of the Lord that comes to Abram? Do not fear, Abram. This is a common thing that we see God saying to people when he appears to them. Do not fear. Secondly, I am a shield to you. And thirdly, your reward shall be very great. God's glory in some measure appears to him. Do not fear. He reminds Abram of the promise that he has made and that the what Abram is supposed to be trusting in is in God himself as the one who will defend him, who will watch over him, who is his refuge. And then he says, your reward will be very great. And that statement that your reward will be very great raises for us a number of questions, potentially. What was Abram being rewarded for? Was it a reward that he had earned? What was the nature of the reward? With regard to what Abram was being rewarded for, I think it would be tied back to Genesis chapter 12 when God says, get up and go, and Abraham obeys. So that is perhaps the occasion of the reward. Is it something that he deserved? There's a sense in which he deserved it through his obedience. There's a sense in which and this, I think, is the primary emphasis in the chapter. It was God's gracious gift toward him. And then thirdly, what was the nature of the reward? Well, the nature of the reward is children and a land, a renewal of the promises that God has already made to him. 
Abram's response is interesting. O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Abram asks the reasonable question from a human perspective. How can these promises be fulfilled if I have no children to inherit the land that you have promised to me? God is patient with Abram in this request. Uh, there are perhaps some parallels between if you make a promise to your kids and it doesn't happen immediately. They trust, hopefully, that you're going to do it. But periodically they ask, when's it going to happen? There's a, a, a question in my mind when I was reading this passage. What was different between Abram and someone like Gideon? Because Abram says, how am I going to know this is going to take place? And Gideon says, how am I going to know this is going to happen? I think the difference has to do with the tone of the story and also what we've seen of the character of both up to this point. God says, get up and go. Abraham packs and leaves and goes. Which is not to say his faith does not waver, because in the instance of going down to Egypt and the confrontation with Pharaoh, there is some wavering of his faith. But here it seems to be an attitude of, God, I know you've made this promise, but I don't understand how you're going to fulfill it. In Gideon's case, it was, I know you've made this promise. You give me a sign. I still don't believe you show me another sign. So that, I think, is the contrast between these two accounts. Both of them needed their faith to grow, but one showed God's work in his life more clearly, and one was more consistent in his following of God. God's response is in verse 4. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. So, what's God's initial promise? You'll have descendants. Now, God is adding a further clarification that those descendants will be actual offspring of Abram. Because theoretically, those descendants could be those that he had uh, adopted into his household in some way. But here it's made clear it's going to be an actual child of yours, Abram. Now look at verse 5. He took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. This statement is quoted at least three times in the New Testament in uh, Romans 4 and in Galatians 3 and then also in James 2, which we looked at a few weeks ago. That Abram believed God and God reckoned, counted, accorded it to him as righteousness. In what way was Abram's belief counted as righteousness? In the same way that I think we receive the righteousness of Christ today. We believe what God has promised, 
and God counts it to us as righteousness. There is perhaps a question of whether it was Abram's own righteousness. Paul makes it clear that it was not Abram's righteousness by keeping the law. So it was not by works of the law. It was instead by faith. There is in a sense in which faith is something that is active, but it is not a work in the sense of being um, an activity or something that we can take credit for. And that's an important distinction, because if faith is a work, then we would say that we are right with God because of this work that we have done. Faith is rather, as Ephesians 2 makes clear, a gift of God, and that salvation of which faith is part comes from God, and so apart from God's work, we will never respond in faith. But the focus here is not primarily on that. It is on Abram's trust in God. And saying that Abram believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness doesn't deny all the behind-the-scenes stuff about how God brought it about. Instead, it draws attention to the fact that God is at work in Abram and Abram is continuing to follow God as God unfolds his promises to him. Verse 7, he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. He said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. Why does he do what he does with these animals? And the short answer is that it is not explained to us. There is perhaps a parallel in what we see in Jeremiah chapter 34, which is a passage that some people bring up, in which God speaks of those who have made a covenant by sacrificing animals, passing between the pieces, in some way showing that as a sign of obligation of the covenant, and then God is condemning them because they didn't keep the promises that they had made. In this case, it is not a man who passes between the pieces of the animal sacrifices, but God himself. And we don't necessarily want to read back from Jeremiah 34 what's going on with this, but simply we can say the parallel is this. There is a promise, a covenant, a solemn oath that is being made with Abram, and God is saying, I'm the one who's going to accomplish it. Look at verse 12. The sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, Know for certain your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not there, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. It's an interesting way to start out what seems to be an encouraging promise or a renewal of the promises by God. You would think that it would be a time of joy and rejoicing. God's renewing his covenant or establishing his covenant with Abram, renewing the promises that he has already made. But it says, deep sleep, terror, and great darkness falls upon him. Why does this take place? Some of it takes place because of the greatness of God in contrast to man. Some of it takes place, I think, for the same sorts of reasons that when Job asks God, 
speak for yourself, explain yourself, God sort of overwhelms Job with his response. I think the same kind of thing is taking place here. Terror and great darkness fall upon him, and then God gives this prophecy of what will take place with Abram's descendants. Interestingly enough, he says, how will I know that they will possess the land? And God says they won't for a while. Right? You're going to be here. You're going to die in peace. Your descendants are going to be enslaved in a land that is not theirs. But you will know that they will come back and possess this land because... Verse 14, I will judge the nation whom they will serve. They will come out with many possessions. Then verse 16, in the fourth generation, they will return here. God is saying to Abram, you will have descendants. You will have the land. It's going to be according to my timing and according to my purpose. You're going to be here. You're going to die here and be buried here. Your family is going to go down. They are going to be delivered by mighty acts, which we read about in the book of Exodus. They are going to be enriched when I bring them out of that land and multiplied when I bring them out of that land. And they are going to come and take possession of the land that I have promised to you. Which is, in some respects, how God has spoken to his people at different points throughout history. Think about what it says in Isaiah 7, the, the, the king of Israel doubts God's promises to deliver him from the enemy threats that surround him. And God says, I'm going to deliver you in the short term and I'm going to deliver all my people ultimately through my son who will be born of a virgin. And so the answer sometimes when we come before God, what we're looking for is, yes, I'm going to do the thing that I just said I was going to do just very briefly. And God's response here is so much greater. Not only are you going to have descendants who will be born from you, who will possess the land, but they're going to be multiplied and they're going to be enriched and they're going to conquer the land and I'm going to be with them. There's an interesting pause in verse 16, or uh, an aside, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Why? Did God not immediately give Abram possession of the land? Why did they have to go down to Egypt? Because God was showing mercy to pagan sinners. The Israelites did horrible things in their worship of their gods. Adultery and immorality and in later cases, child sacrifice. All sorts of horrific things in the service of their gods. But God showed them mercy. In the class that I teach at Brady and Maggie School, we were talking about that in connection with God's judgment on Herod in the book of Acts. Herod has this boastful speech that people say the voice of a god and not of a man and God strikes him down and he dies. We do not necessarily have the authority to make a one-to-one -one connection between a specific wicked act and God's judgment on that person, or what appears to be God's judgment on that person. But when it comes to the state of our nation today that we live in, 
recognizing that we are not Israel, we're not mentioned in the Bible specifically or anything like that, but the parallels between God's attitude toward the behavior of wicked people, we ought to recognize that we stand presently under God's mercy. Michigan is, from what I understand as of recently, a state where you are not allowed to euthanize a shelter animal any longer, even if the shelter gets too crowded. Michigan is also a state where people are strongly arguing for the right to execute an infant at any point of pregnancy and even once that child is born. And if we don't see the parallels between the wickedness of the Canaanites and the blindness and wickedness of our own country in those things, we are missing something very obvious. God is showing us mercy collectively. And if we look at the example of what we're going to see a few chapters later, part of the reason God may be doing that is because there are a few righteous left the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we living in a righteous way? Are we seeking to persuade those around us of the truth of the God that we serve? Because the question about God's judgment is not if, but when. And so we ought not to see God's patience and God's mercy as an excuse to ignore the reality of who he is, that he's a God who carries out justice, that he is a God who reckons with iniquity, we ought instead to see it as God's kindness. God was going to spare the Canaanites for some 430 years, according to the book of Exodus, which seems like a very long time, but in the span of history, is not all that long. They failed to repent. My hope and my prayer is that those around us would not likewise fail to repent and that we would urge them to do so. We can continue to repent ourselves because we are not yet without sin, not being yet in God's presence. Verse 17, God makes himself known. It came about when the sun had set, it was very dark, and there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. How do we know that it signified God's presence? Because in verse 18 it says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram. A parallel passage might be what it says in Hebrews 12, verse 29, Our God is a consuming fire. There are many cases when, think of the book of Exodus, God appears in the form of a burning bush. God's Majesty, glory, purity, and power are pictured by this image of a fire. So God, as a smoking oven, as a flaming torch, symbolically shows himself passing through these pieces of the animal sacrifices and sealing the covenant that he made with Abram. What covenant does he make? To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. And then he lists off the, the tribes that were presently possessing that land. Did 
Israel possess that territory. There are some that would argue that in the time of Solomon they came close, but they have never for any extended period of time possessed the territory that God has promised to them. So we have two options, or two or three options. God's promise failed, God changed his mind, or God's going to yet do it in the future. Which one do you think is the best answer? God is going to give to his people their promised inheritance in the end times, in his great time of victory, and they will have what God has promised to them. Because the promise that's being made here is not, Abram, if you and your descendants keep following me, I'll give it to you. It's just God says, I'm going to do this. If they wanted to benefit from those promises, yes, there's a sense in which they needed to have the same sort of faith as Abram, but the promise did not stand or fall based on the obedience of Abram's descendants because the promise was tied to God and to his character. So God is making these great and many promises to Abram. And as we looked at in Sunday school last week, what were some of the benefits of this covenant that God had given to Abram? A great name and nation, blessedness and blessing, that he would be a seed of blessing, that there would be a land, that there would be great reward. In the upcoming chapters, we're going to see that there would be a specific heir in the person of Isaac, that there would be many descendants, that he would be the father of kings and princes, that he would have the possession of his enemies. And what do we see? There is a sacrifice to seal that covenant. In chapter 17, there's going to be a token or an obligation as a sign of the covenant. God is going to keep his word. So God makes great promises to Abram and seals them in the form of a covenant, which is more than just a promise or a statement or something like that. It's a solemn agreement that he's going to carry out the things that he said he was going to do. God is obligating himself to do that. What does that teach us about our God? That he is a faithful God. We tend to be sporadically faithful. We tend to often speak the truth, but not always. But God is always faithful, and God is always truthful. What do we learn about ourselves? That in times when our faith needs to be strengthened, God can and often does reassure our faith. Abram is saying, you've made these promises. Help me to believe more. Help me to know when and how you're going to carry them out. And God answers in an amazing way. I'm going to do it. You are not going to see the ultimate fulfillment of these things in your natural life, but you are going to see them fulfilled. I am going to keep my word. So then that raises the question for us of whether we take the word of the Lord and cling to it and believe it and value it and live by it, or whether we say, you know what, that's, that's a good truth. I'm going to keep doing the thing I'm doing over here. God's word can and must be believed. 
We learn also from this passage that God is merciful. Do we rejoice in God's mercy? Do we plead with others so that they might also experience God's mercy? We see that God is unfolding a plan that is not going to be complete for thousands of years. But it's going to take place. So do we see where we are at in the progress of God's unfolding plan for humanity throughout history? And do we marvel at it? And do we praise God both for his carrying out of that plan and for the opportunity to participate in it? There are many things that we can take away from this passage. The primary thing is the faithfulness of God in observing the faith of Abram, rejoicing in the first, striving to live up to the example of the second, by God's help. God has made amazing promises, and he will keep them. Let's pray. Lord, there are times when the promises that you have made seem far removed from the fulfillment of those things. There are times when, even though we know that you are near because you are omnipresent and because you are close to your people, sometimes we question whether you are present and active and working. Lord, help us to see from a passage like this that the timetable in which you are working far exceeds our ability both to observe it firsthand or to completely comprehend it. But we can trust who you are. We can rely on your promises. We can follow you faithfully and in that way be descendants of Abraham in the way that Galatians speaks of it. Those who have the same kind of faith who follow the same faithful God, who participate in the plan which God is unfolding on their behalf. Lord, help that to be true for each one of us. Help us to be amazed and to marvel at your word. Sometimes we look at it and we say, that's nice. I've done what I should do for the day as far as looking at it. Help us to Turn these truths over and over in our minds and let them sink into our souls so that they impact our thinking, our words, our actions. Lord, we pray that these things would remain with us throughout this week and that you would be honored by that. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.